Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. Ready for a career in behavioral health? Earn your online degree at Herzing University. Choose from health and human services, psychology, or social work programs. Gain the skills to work, coordinate, and manage nonprofits. Secure a bachelor's in psychology to study mental health or advance your social work career through our online Masters of Social Work. Let us help you become a social change agent. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Text HEALTH to 85109. That's HEALTH to 85109. Or visit herzing.edu. Hello, everyone, and welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. With me is my dear co-host, who ages like fine wine, Michael Walker. How are you doing, Walker? I'm good, Mark. How are you today? I'm very well. I am your co-host, Mark Bigney, who's been 12 going on 60 for the majority of his life. We are a board gaming podcast. We're going to talk about board games this week to mix things up. We're going to talk about the Eurus, the as-yet-unnamed retrospective intro segment. We're going to talk about the many many games we played last week. It was an excellent week of gaming. So excellent to point the fact that we are going to omit a normal topic or feature game. We're going to head straight on that on the news and why it doesn't matter. And that is going to do it until, of course, we talk about Masterpiece Theater, but uh, such is the way of things. Is, is acknowledging the existence of Masterpiece Theater in the main show a violation of the terms of Masterpiece Theater? I'm going to have to check the fine print. Yeah, I can't remember our policies on that particular issue. I know Mr. Diesel's Attorney got back to his quite a few Mr. Times. Diesel. Yes. Whew. That's a violation of his of his many titles of nobility, sir. Oh, at we're, least we're going to get another letter now. At least, Doctor Doc. Oh, I'd love to get a letter. <laughs> what could we call him that we would get a letter? <laughs> what kind of letter do you want? <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to have to put the Gibbons on this. They'll they'll have to come yeah. up with something. So, the game we reviewed exactly one year ago was Reiner Knizia's Witch Stone. And but, Martino Chiacchiera. But was a rare uh, yes. co-design. Reiner Knizia doesn't do very much. And I think this is the most sooky of all of Reiner Knizia's games. It's combo upon combo upon combo. And some turns will be very quick and some turns will be much longer. I have kept it, not only because it's about to get an expansion. Unfortunately, these games that come out overseas, the expansions take even longer than the actual games themselves. So still waiting on a Taverns of Tiefen Hall. Still waiting on... Witchstone Full Moon. Witchstone, a great game. Simple, same Reiner Knizia. You pick a tile. It has two actions on it. Two actions in a Reiner Knizia game. Weird, I know. And then <laughs> that will start off multiple combos, not only on the first cauldron play, but subsequent fan out on all the different other actions you get to do. Yeah, what if Einfach Genial were your action selection mechanism, or Ingenious were the action selection mechanism? I think you're entirely right to connect it to the work of Vladimir Suki, or indeed of Stefan Feld, a lot of the contemporary medium-weight Euro designers, in that 
there's uh, a fair amount of tracks, a fair amount of borderline point salad. And that's one of the reasons why uh, Witchstone didn't really hit with me. It's, it is a perfectly pleasant contemporary Euro game, and I really like the action selection mechanism. But past that, it feels an awful lot more like standard middleweight games than it, it would, say, a Reiner Knizia, which is okay. I, I don't mind games like that on occasion, but uh, generally speaking, I'm more than happy to wait six months for the next Vladimir Suki game to come out, and I'll <laughs> play that the one time that I want to play it and get what I want out of that. The production's really nice, and it's an easy teach, and the flow is real. Absolutely. it's it. There's nothing objectionable about Witchstone. Uh, I, I don't know how real the flow is, though, because you do have those combo-tastic turns where you're just sitting there waiting for someone to finish. But sometimes it's impressive seeing these combos go off, and it gives you ideas sure. on how to do your own turn. Uh, sure, not in a planning sense, though. No. It doesn't really help you hit the ground running for your action to come. And this was a review copy we received from the publisher, Witchstone by Martino Chiacchiara and Reiner Knizia. Now, on to the games we played this week. Mark, what did you play? I've been playing more Skytier Horde. I find myself keep going back to the incredibly quick setup and excellent combat and tower defense nature of Skytier Horde. This is continuing to please me. I'm working through the different decks, seeing the different combinations, because the variety is not endless, but substantial, both in terms of difficulty levels and different things you can play with. And I haven't even started getting into deck construction. I might even get into deck construction. Although, to be frank, that would probably be wasted effort. Because this is one of those instances where, even though I am coming to terms with the same criticism I've been levying the entire time, the relatively slow level of card input, I think that going to the difficulty of engaging in deck building would really highlight the futility of that if it's the case that you only see a tiny percentage of your deck in any given playthrough. But I am really enjoying exploring the different parts of it. And I'm really considering bumping up the difficulty now. And I'd, I'd like to apologize. The first time we played, just as a note, I thought that we were playing on normal difficulty level. We were, in point of fact, playing on hard difficulty oh. level. Yes, the default difficulty level is called normal rather than easy, uh, or at least the intro difficulty level, the easiest level. There are further ways to tweak the difficulty both up and down. There's even a way to kind of sort of almost have graduated decks for the enemies, although it's not really quite graduated, it's just alternating between the difficult and hard. Suffice to say, there's a lot of variety in a tiny package. I am now seeing that in American retail, the price of the base set is a little more reasonable. In Canada, it's still kind of a pricey endeavor. It is what it is. But Skytier Horde has been continuing to delight me, and given how quick and simple the setup is, which again, for a solo game, I cannot stress enough, is really a great way to lower that barrier to entry. I really recommend Skytier Horde. I've been having a blast. That's Skytier Horde by Giacomo Neri and Ricardo Neri, published by Skytier Games. You were nice enough to show me a game called Pew Pew Bookie Book, or <laughs> Wands and Parchment, or Pens and Files, a.k.a. Wizards of the Grimoire. So this is a design by Cole Banning and Joel Banning. And, and this is a review copy we got from the designers. It's published by Grimoire Games. Please go to BGG and credit your artists for your game. Now, this is what I enjoy about two-player battler games. All information is available. The cards that come up in the draft that we're both going to draft from, the cards that we get to use are in open tableau in front of us, and it's a very interesting sort of combo-type 
game. You're building this combo up. You get to see what's coming up. You can see what cards are going to add to the combos you already have going. It has a very interesting timing system and multi-use sort of mana cards because when you cast spells, you're just placing any of these mana cards on top. It's just asking for a certain number of them, but they have numbers one through four, and sometimes that comes into play depending on the spell or the circumstance. Really good game. Looking forward to playing it more. More, Mark, what did you think of Wizards of the Grimoire? Pew, pew, bookie book? Pew, pew, bookie book. I came in with zero expectations. It's one of those games where you read the rule book for Wizards of the Grimoire and you have no idea what to expect. And indeed, it looks an awful lot like, again, based on the rule book, it looks an awful lot like some of those games that we thoroughly, thoroughly do not enjoy. You play the card, it does what it says it does, meh. And the example cards in the rulebook, this isn't even a criticism of the rulebook, just, just, this is just characterizing my expectations going in. They have such exciting effects as do six damage, or do three damage, and the opponent discards a card. But then you actually get into the game, and you look at the sea of effects that are presented with you, and you're exactly right. You don't need any pre-knowledge of what the cards might look like because you get a good sense from the initial flop of 10 cards from which you'll be drafting. You know exactly what your opponent is capable of because, again, they've been drafting things openly. As a consequence, what you get out of something like Wizards of the Grimoire is not entirely unlike some of the things that I like about Sakura Arms, an evolving knowledge state where you're learning new things about your opponent's capabilities, but in this case, it's far more transparent even than Sakura Arms. And you're literally building your own combo because, yes, the actual way you damage your opponent is typically through these incredibly boring spells that do four damage or whatever. But the genius is in manipulation of everything around that. So the combo that I had built up, which barely worked, was about removing cards from the cooldown so I could cast cards more often and drowning in mana so I could always afford to cast them. You, on the other hand, were manipulating all the other elements of the game, such that the so-called basic attacks were never, almost never in my interest to launch against you, whereas you could do it trivially. And that was an interesting development. Now, is it the case that every combo is going to develop organically in that interesting way? I'm optimistic because of the incredible variety of spell effects that, again... I had not been given a preview of in the rulebook. Again, not a criticism. Just I came in with zero expectations. And like you, I was thoroughly impressed by Wizards of the Grimoire. Wizards of the Grimoire. Pew, pew, bookie book. I played a game of Codenames. Now, Codenames has been uh, frequently discussed. There are a couple things that I want to mention about Codenames. First of all, I'm constantly shocked. Codenames in my head has just been a fixture of hobby gaming forever. And yet I was reminded that it's still less than 10 years old, which is... Still pretty impressive. Anyway, the other thing that I was reminded of returning to Codenames after a while was there's an awkward balance to be struck. On the one hand, Codenames is a great game to play with strangers. It's a great game to play with non-hobbyist gamers. It's a great little filler to cap off a gaming night, bringing all the different tables together, the people over there that were playing a Splatter game, the people over there that were playing a Vladimir Suki game, the people over there that were playing uh, the latest map of Ticket to Ride. They all get to play Codenames together. Except... <laughs> And this is one of those things, again, that, I, that I'm really trying to work on as a gamer. Codenames only works when, especially the code giver, but everyone at the table, is willing to follow certain formalisms. One of them is that as a code giver, you do not gesture, look at, or touch the result cards until someone has actually made a guess. This, on the face of it... Sounds easy, but in practice is often violated. And the problem is 
the game doesn't really work if people don't follow it. I'm not saying that, oh, well, you know, unfair advantage, whatever. I would say the game just flatly doesn't work if it's the case that the code giver's hand, the moment you start discussing the correct answer, shifts towards the correct answer pile of tiles. And the moment you start discussing a wrong answer, shift towards the wrong answer pile of tiles. I'm not going to say that the person was that bad, but it was real close. Someone would say, well, how about this thing that they were thinking of? And they would immediately grab the right answer tile. It's like, no, you can't do it that way. The problem is my natural impulse as a, what's the word, cretin, is to yell at them. But I ha- again, I don't know these people well. And even if I did, I should move away from that impulse. You just have to say you cannot move. Make any actions until someone touches a card. I know, but trying to find a polite way to say that to a stranger. That's, that didn't sound polite? See, you can you have that tone. I can't pull oh. off that tone. It's a, it's a question of presence. It's a question of presentation, presence, poise, posture, all these other things. In my trunk, I have a cleaver. <laughs> I cut meat with it. You will lose your hands next time you touch one of those tiles. Are you sure? Can I workshop that one a little bit? <laughs> a little bit. Is that a word-for-word word script? I don't know that I could pull that off. I don't For one thing, I don't have the cleaver. If you do with a nice smile on your face, I bet you they'll listen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, fortunately, this was a case of someone else doing this. I, I think they were also a little bit too... But the problem is, I never know how aggressive to be. Because on the one hand, it is super important. And on the other hand, you can't be a jerk about it. So this is one of those many minefields that that I need to be more conscious of, I need to develop on. But I have gotten better at moving past people doing that when it doesn't matter. The problem is, with code names, it really matters. And probably it was probably amplified because they weren't on your team. Whereas if they were part of your team, it would have been a lot easier. Uh, no, this person was on my team. Like, so it might, might not have been too bad because, you know, they're they're helping you. Oh. Therefore, as opposed, you know, if, if oh, you're, you're saying it gives you a better them. standing. Yeah, to, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was so so literally what happened was they were doing it really badly. Someone gave a minor corrective, but without going into much details, yeah, just don't don't can't best not to touch the tile until we've actually made a guess or something, something very, very minor, but without emphasizing the importance of it. And then they kept doing it. And while I was standing there in my head, trying to think about how to go about it, because it also didn't uh, help that the people in question were women that I didn't know. And generally speaking as a man, I don't want to, you know, like loom and start screaming, but again, that's my impulse. That's my, that's where immediately where I want to go to intellectual knife fight. Right. Anyway. And in that pause, somebody else jumped in and was, a little more aggressive than I would have been, but again, it's a question of who delivers it and how. It's 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 a whole cultural minefield. Anyway, so I'm trying to be better about that. I wish that there that more light games didn't ex- like. Honestly, it's my biggest fault against code names. To be frank, the fact that formalisms have to be followed so strictly in a light, approachable, accessible game, and uh, that line is one I find very very difficult to tread. Still one of the best party games ever made. No disagreement at all. Codenames codenames fraught with a bit of of social tension is still great codenames. I will absolutely agree with you there. So that's Codenames by Vlada Kvatel. So you showed us a very interesting trick-taking game called Pala. This is designed by Jeffrey D. Allers and put out by Cambridge Games Factory. It yes, was also a Japanese version that was put out as well. Yes, recently reprinted by Suki Games or Ski Games. I, I don't know, the vowel, it's, it's tricky in Japanese. And I will say that in terms of full disclosure, I did write the rulebook for the Cambridge Games Factory edition. 
I was never compensated. I was promised Snickers bars, which I have not yet received. <gasps> so make of that what you will in terms of disclosure. I pride myself on the most transparent and complete disclosures in the board gaming industry. So Pala. <laughs> Sorry, we were talking about Snickers bars? I, I got confused. So this is a game based on colors, which is very interesting because then if someone leads with a green... You can play a blue and a yellow together, and they'll add up together, and they will beat that green card. Or you can smear a color and and change it into something else, as long as you don't have one of those cards marked. Yeah, let's see what I did there. You know, I I had a blue. I should have played the blue. Yeah, well, it is a little tricky. In order to smear a primary color, you need to, number one, be void in that primary color. Number two, have have another primary color in your hand. And number three have a secondary color card of the mix of those two primaries. So, for example, if someone leads a blue, and you're void in blue, you can play a red on top of that blue. And now it's not a blue trick anymore, it's a purple trick. But you have to have another purple card in your hand. But it's it's a it really explodes the decision space and the tactical considerations, and it upends a lot of intuitions. Like, I could see you, I'm very curious to hear about your impressions, because I could see you being frustrated, because I could see decades of Euchre logic being undermined in your head. I could see it in Huey, too. He's like, but 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 when people get void, things go crazy. It's like, yes, that is exactly what happens in Pala. So what did you think? I really liked it, especially the bidding system. There's been a lot of games like... The Christmas, Ghost of Christmas. Ghost of Christmas, yes. Which is a very strict bidding system. You have to bid exactly yes. what you're going to win. I really like the bidding system Pala. You just say, I'm going to win a trick of each of these colors that I put out in front of me. It doesn't matter how many you've won as long as you win one of each. And then the rest are just points on top of that. Yes, I find that much more forgiving. The You always want to win as many tricks as you can but sometimes you get more points for having had a more aggressive bid. I vastly prefer that over something like Ghost of Christmas. And then it has the shoot the moon where you can just say, uh, I'm not going to win any tricks this turn. And that is also fun. But don't do that if you're the second player. Just say. <laughs> well, Probably not the greatest of ideas. It depends. If your hand is sufficiently good, by which I mean sufficiently bad, by which I mean sufficiently good, you can possibly get away with it. But of course, if you're a neophyte in Pala, sometimes you don't know how strong your hand is. Because again, a lot of your assumptions about going void, about when you can go void, about who's going to go void when, are really upended. Now, I'm not saying that it's incredibly counterintuitive. It is not uh, brain-busting the way that Mu is. Not even in the way that Ghost of Christmas is, really. Again, like this is not against a, a knock against Ghost of Christmas. It's just structurally, it's a little counterintuitive. Pala is just counterintuitive by virtue of the card play, which I think is appealing. And I, I agree with you. The bidding system is very, very clever. We played with the pointillism uh, version. There's also an impressionism version, which is kind of like Nyet. Have you ever played Nyet? I did a long time ago. Yeah, Nyet is a, it has a pseudo bidding system where at the start of every hand, you play cards to determine what those cards are going to be worth in terms of the scoring. And Impressionism kind of sort of works that way. And in Impressionism, you never want to win tricks as a rule. There are certain borderline exceptions. As opposed to Pointillism, where you bid and you try to make your bid. Anyway, I used to play Pala all the time because I was friends with the people who were publishing it. And it was just so clever and weird. That is actually how I learned colors. I never learned colors in school. I didn't learn the color well. I don't know whether this... Other people who are educated in Quebec... People publicly educated in Quebec, please let me know, did you learn the color wheel? Because I I knew that yellow and blue made green by virtue of GLAD commercials, 
And I just didn't know that red and blue made purple. And that red and yellow made orange. Even now I have to think about it. And I have to think about it in terms of Paula. <laughs> and But they, they are nice enough to put a nice color wheel out for you. Yes. Right? So those people that are color incapacitated. uh, I'm not colorblind. I'm just color stupid. (laughs) There's a difference. And that's Pala, designed by Jeffrey D. Ellers and put out by Cambridge Games Factory. Yeah, I've been seeing some people importing the new Japanese version. I'm glad it's back in print. Uh, I think it should be more widespread in print. Like, weird trick-taking games are having a moment. They sometimes do. They come in and out of fashion. And I, I do, I'm not surprised it got picked up by a Japanese publisher because Ghost of Christmas was originally published in Japan. And weird trick-taking games are very much in the Japanese game design aesthetic. So I'm glad it's back in print. I get to play Circadian's First Light. This is by S.J. McDonald and Garpill Games. This is kind of sort of in the same universe as Circadian's Chaos Order, which is the... A strange, a little uneven troops on a map game that we've talked about in the past. It is the Euro Resource Management prequel to Circadian's Chaos Order. In First Light, it's it's kind of sort of, it's weird. The theming is bizarre. The theming tries to get away from colonialism and manages to run smack first into space colonialism anyway. I don't find space colonialism especially problematic because at least in space colonialism, you can just say that it's, happy and friendly to everybody. I don't know... No one hears the genocide screaming? Well, no. It's like, you get to pretend that we're more enlightened and we're we're actually able... It's weird. It's complicated. Am I just glorifying, glossing over the atrocities of colonialism by saying that it's possible to do a sci-fi version that's... the, the It doesn't say it's colonialist. It says that we're just engaged in friendly trade and study of these alien species. But it was pointed out by somebody else at the table. We do establish our own farms in the process, and that is one of the definitional elements of colonialism. Isn't that the banner in the British Science Museum? (laughs) Point taken. Anyway, (laughs) if you don't like pseudo-colonialism dressed up in science fiction themes, you should probably stay away. But I I didn't find it problematic. I just found the theming confused, suffice to say. Anyway, it does also have that very characteristic art of Chaos Order done by Sam Phillips. If you just look online and look at any of the art of any of the Circadians games, it's very striking. I don't know that it's entirely to my taste, but it's so different from a lot of other board game art, I'm certainly willing to give it a pass. So, Circadians First Light was a combination of two things. On the one hand pretty generic Euro dice placement resource manipulation. You roll some dice, you place the dice, you get the dice give you some resources, and then maybe you play some dice elsewhere, and then you get your points. And that part was a mishmash of things you've done dozens of times before. But I nonetheless enjoyed it, because there were a couple of elements of Circadian's First Light that really changed the formula just enough to keep me engaged throughout the runtime. One of the things that gets changed is I really like how it deals with resource production. You have this harvester that starts out in the middle of a hex grid. And with some difficulty, you can move the harvester to adjacent nodes. And wherever it's standing is consists of a, the bulk of the resources you're going to get at the end of the turn. This gives you a certain degree of control and certainly more texture and nuance and interest to just standard notions of, well, I'm going to throw resources at something to buff up my production elsewhere. And it also lets you pivot. So the outer ring of resource production is just generally superior to what's in the inner ring. 
but you can change, say, I've, I've generated enough algae now, I don't need all this algae, I'd like to get more energy instead. You can do that and not lose all your progress, technically. It's also the case that you can get end-game bonus points if you've gotten to the, the outermost outer ring. That part I, I thought was very clever. Was it a public harvester, or was it your own harvester on your own board? Everyone has their own harvester okay. on a central board, and there are some first two bonuses based right. on certain spaces. That part I really enjoyed. And again, that's the bulk of the resources that you tend to get. You can build your own farms, as I say, but they tend to be somewhat secondary. Another thing that I liked in Circadian's First Light is that your dice, which are your workers, are number one, seldom manipulated, but that works out okay. And number two, your supply of dice tends to be in a relative range of flux. So at the start of a round, you can have roughly three to five dice. Sometimes you can get a little, little bit fewer, a little bit more. But managing your supply of dice was important, but not the be-all and end-all. And it is seldom that a worker placement game or a worker placement adjacent game has that level of flexibility. It tends to be the case either that, like Tribune, amazing game, you always have the same number of workers, or like in Agricola, amazing game, you can get more workers and you'd better. Here, you have an excellent middle path. You have to worry about your dice. They could get locked in whenever you go get victory points with them, broadly speaking. And then you have to get them from elsewhere, which is difficult, but not impossible. And it is also the case that the marginal value of, of additional dice is significant, but not overwhelming. So if you've reliably got five dice and I've reliably got three, you're going to be doing better, but you're not going to completely run the table as a consequence of that exclusively. Anyhow, all of that I found, as I say, sufficiently engaging that I was, was able to thoroughly enjoy Circadian's First Light, despite the fact that, as I say, the rest of it is pretty bone standard. I realize that that comes off as a very qualified recommendation, but such as it is. It is now firmly in the, I'd be willing to play again, but I've seen what it has to offer, and I'm willing to regard it as a solid effort, but nothing groundbreaking. How many players did you play with? I played it with the full complement of four players. Nice. And it didn't outstay its welcome, which is also another thing that incredibly generic Euro games tend to do. Speaking of dice games, I got to play Dice Manor. This is designed by Jarrett Herter. And published by Arcane Wonders, this is a... Herder. I don't even know her. This is a Dice Tower Essential Mark. So what you're doing in Dice Manor is at the beginning of your turn, you're rolling these seven dice. And there's all sorts of different places to put them. It is an auction game. So there's the six faces around the board, one through six, and those are for bidding on map tiles that you're going to... Room tiles that you're going to add to your manor. There's also this central board where you have two more dice locked up. So you can get up to nine. So you're bidding on this other section to unlock your dice and get points. And then the third place you can put dice is in your actual manor. So in the first turn, you only have your entrance hall, but later on you're going to be adding more rooms. That's not to how it. houses get built. The theme in this game is ridiculous. <laughs> As in there is none. So sure. like I said, there's the six spots around the board and only dice of that number can go there. So when you roll your seven dice, you have to pick one number. So you sort of group them together and say, I'm going to use my twos. So right. you can either put them in the two slot and you're trying to get the most dice there to get the room tile that's in two, or you're putting them in the center. And in the center, it's the same thing. Most dice will win. But if you have three dice there that are twos and I bring in three threes, then you get bumped down because, of course, three threes are better than three twos. What happens if I, quote unquote, lose the bid on a room tile? Then you'll get a, a Benny that will let you re-roll dice or, okay. or whatever. So, like, so that's the, the thing I sort of forgotten. You roll the dice and then you have to spend your bennies then before you pick dice. 
And then what you're trying to do with the rooms is you sort of want to get rooms that will trigger off the same number. Because like I said, you can only pick one number when it's your turn and you're going to get pretty good points for placing a bunch of dice in your manor on a single turn. Oh my goodness. It's one of these like triangulation things. Sure. Because your 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 main hall is a question mark. So you want to get rooms that either have question marks or, you know, a run of twos. So you put a bunch of, you roll your dice, you get maybe one or two twos and maybe a three and a four. And then you use your manipulation tokens to get right. four twos. Place all four twos in your, in your manor, score a whole bunch of points. But then on your next turn, you're rolling less dice. So you roll your seven dice, you put out your bids, and then you keep going around the table until no one has any dice left. And then you give out the prizes for the, the rooms and everything else. So I'm not sure what what they saw here, but <laughs> it was it was not very interesting. Like I, maybe for, for those of you that are not fluent in Walker, <laughs> maybe maybe the, the, the auctions were more exciting for them. But it was mostly just people would put three in a room and no one would try to fight them. You can like bump your bids later on. Like, you know, I put two here and someone, you know, puts three and later on, if I roll twos again, I could put more in twos and, and take the lead again. But wasting so much dice there didn't make any sense because there's six places on the board. So you just go somewhere else. Right. The middle is, is fairly important, but the person that won barely went to the middle because not mm. only are you moving this house token to the right, which, you know, is increasingly more points. But then depending on how many dice you bid there, you're moving your extra dice towards the house. And when they meet, you get that die. I see. But not looking forward to playing it again. Hmm. I wouldn't mind showing it to you. It, it is. Why, why would, well, why would you it, want me to because suffer? Because it's least inoffensive. It says, <laughs> it says 60, 40 to 60 minutes on the box or no, 45 to 60 minutes. And I believe it. That's with, okay. with explanation. It was less than 60 minutes. So it is, I'd played it twice. I played it two player and I thought, you know, two player auction game. Right. But no, it was just, it was the same with four. It still had no tension and no, no excitement, at least mm. for me. Sure. And that is Dice Manor by Garrett Herter. I played a game that I've been holding on to for a while called Aegis, Combining Robot Strategy Game. And obviously the reason why I've been holding on for a while is because it's called Aegis, Combining Robot Strategy Game. Anybody who knows anything about me, or indeed anything about genuine joy and enthusiasm, could hardly look askance at my wanting to play the combining robot strategy game. I mean, do you get come to, on. Do you get to build robots? Oh, God, kind it's designed of. by Simon? Is that by Simon? No. Oh. No, it's not designed. <laughs> <laughs> it is designed by a veritable army of individuals, Cassandra Clark, Sarah Como, Breeze Gigas, Zach Cattell, Ryan, the Boulder, Richford, and Tom Wozencraft, put up by Zephyr Workshop after a successful crowdfunding campaign. There are a hundred different robots in the box, Walker. Ooh, that's a lot of robots. It's a fair number of robots. You build a team of five, and like many excellent skirmish games, they give you lots of pre-built teams, but also the ability to make your own. And in addition, you have a sideboard consisting of the robots that those robots can combine into. Quick side note, how good do you think the first AI-designed game is going to be? <laughs> Continue. <laughs> Probably exceptionally generic. Probably. So maybe it'll do very well. Anyway, it's called Aegis because in your team you have an A-type robot, an E-type robot, a G-type robot, etc. Assault, evasive, guard, intelligence, and support. Cute enough. And when you combine robots, you can pick combining robots that are, for example, an AGS, in which case you need to have your assault robot combined with your guard robot combined with support robot. Oh, it's Robot Scrabble. There you go. 
And when I initially read the rules, it didn't, not entirely unlike Wizards of the Grimoire, I didn't really see on the face of it where it was going to shine, but that's often the case with skirmish-type games. A lot of it depends on how good the special abilities are of the robots, and do they really encourage tactical positioning? Because, look, I am willing to play any number of skirmish games that devolve into a scrum. That's fine. I love chucking dice and engaging in skirmish-type things where it's just a question of special abilities and they all gather together in the middle and it's a scrum. But I would much rather have a reason to maneuver and have a reason to care about where things are and or there be other elements of interest. And I was very pleasantly surprised by Aegis because the very nature of the guard robots alone encourages a considerable amount of maneuver because most guard robots, what makes them guard robots, is they have the beacon ability. If you can target a robot with beacon, you must. This applies to both you and your opponents. So suddenly, my healing laser that would love to heal that fragile robot off to the side, oh no, you're within range of your own beacon. So you have to heal the guard robot that's either undamaged or certainly not as damaged. You'd love your assault robot to go after your squishy com uh, commander robot in the intelligence spot. No, no, you need to get far enough away for the opponent guard robot for that to be an option because otherwise you need to target the guard robot. So that alone led to a lot of interesting positioning elements. So I was very, very pleasantly surprised. I'm also very pleasantly surprised with the fact that this is an economical skirmish-type game with a hundred different robots in the box, rather than making charging you something like 40 bucks for three additional units, which is, sadly, not uncommon in the skirmish space. I'm going to have a lot more to say about that in an episode of Survey Wrong About All the Games You Like Are Bad, and indeed I'll have more to say about that in this episode... In as well, because I'll be talking about another game that does it almost as well. There's going to be a second season of Aegis, and I have late pledged for it, such as my enthusiasm. It is definitely a worthy skirmish game in a very, very, very crowded market. Now, I do not know whether one team is going to look sufficiently different from the next, because, as I say, I only saw two different teams slug it out. The Combino robots were definitely more powerful. I was a little underwhelmed by their personality, at the point that you're spending considerable effort getting out a Combino robot, I really want its presence to be felt. And they were felt, but not necessarily to the extent that I would have liked. And that leads me a little bit concerned as to whether or not the teams are going to feel radically different from each other. Now, the different bots felt very different from each other, but I think largely by virtue of their class distinctions. What I want to know is how different do the different assault robots feel from each other? For example, is it just going to be the difference of like, well, this robot rolls three dice and hits on fours and this robot rolls four dice and hits on fives? Like, is that the extent of it? If so, I'm going to be somewhat disappointed. I may indeed even cancel my late pledge when and if I get the, the chance to go back to Aegis in the future. But suffice to say, unlike a lot of other skirmish games that I thoroughly enjoy and say, eh, no need to go back. Uh, Aegis is a game that I wish to go back to and see the additional characters, see the additional robots, and so forth. That's Aegis. That is Aegis, the combining robot strategy game. We played 51st State Master Set because the ultimate edition just fulfilled, and, and <laughs> not in Canada. <laughs> in some parts of the world, yes. Some parts of the world. And it came with a No Man's Land expansion. This is the increasingly erroneously named 51st State Complete Master Set. <laughs> Just keep tacking on buzzwords. Oh, yeah. This is designed by Ignacy Trebacek and put out by Portal Games. Well, the expansion was also co-designed by Ioana Kiyanka. Thank you. Now, I really like 51st Master Set because it gives you options to play all sorts of different ways. You can... Uh, trash own cards in your hand for resources. You can just work on building up your tableau. You can do many things. 
But what No Man's Land does is it makes you focus one way. It has this area in the middle and you cannot just let one person run away with it. It is a lot of points and you need to fight. You need to generate guns. You need to uh, take territory away. You need to stop them from triggering it over and over again and getting away with the game, uh, which was interesting. Yes. Uh, I wouldn't say terrible. I would just say that I would play it much differently if I played it again. Maybe a little caveat at the beginning to tell people like this is this is the thing you're gonna have to fight. Right. You know I don't know how you play fifth first statement normally, but this is this is the deal here in the middle. Get ready for it. I agree with you. I I don't know that it's necessarily a detriment to the expansion. This is absolutely not the first expansion I would recommend to anyone. So there's allies, which I think is a very very excellent expansion. Uh, much better than Scavengers. So there's, so there are now a bunch of expansions to the 51st State Master Set. There's Scavengers, Allies, Moloch, and now No One's Land. I'm going to call it No One's Land. I, I'm trying not to use gendered language. And No One's Land seems to work about as well. Allies is probably the one that I'd recommend first because it's interesting, clever, minimal rules overhead, and significantly changes the game. Now, those three characterizations, interesting, clever, and significantly changes the game, apply to very extent to all of the expansions. I've been very pleased with all of them. The difference, though, in terms of Moloch and No One's Land is that they really have exerted an outsized influence on how the game is played. For experienced pl- gamers of 51st State Master Set who've played it a bunch of times and can appreciate the pivot to a different focus, I think that's great. For a first-time player, no. I think a first-time player should be able to explore the different avenues, the different ways to manipulate cards. Do you want to go heavy into red to blue to gray? Do you want to engage in resource manipulation this way? Do you want to manipulate resources this other way? Or would you rather burn the place down? Rather than saying, guess what, kids? Military really matters in this version. I did appreciate the increased emphasis on military because one of the things that I've said about 51st State Master Set is that although it is slightly more interactive than the majority of Euro Tableau Builders that you're going to play, it is not quite as interactive as I would normally like. And typically, it feels semi-arbitrary as to what you're going to go burn down. I mean, sometimes there's a clear leader and they're pumping their engine. You look at the key fulcrum of their engine and you go burn that down and that makes perfect sense. But not infrequently, I mean, maybe, maybe your experience has been different. You're sitting on a whole bunch of red arrows. You know those red arrows are going to go to waste. So you just go looking around and say, okay, what am I going to burn down? And it's semi-arbitrary. In the case of No One's Land, it on a spectrum, it kind of brings it a little bit closer to a Troops on a Map game. And, of course, you're going to burn down your neighbor because that's what you're allowed to do. <laughs> and I appreciated that level of focus. I thought it was an interesting twist. I would not want to play it every time. No, I also like how it lets you cycle your cards a bit better. Because lots of times when you're when you're drafting the cards, there are cards that you don't need or you know will never play. You're right, you're right. But now this this you know it says oh you need a bullet to go here or and, and it's like that I'll just take that card. There's nothing else I'd want there anyway. Now I can use that card to advance into another territory and start working on that. It also forced me to consider tempo in a way that I hadn't for a while. I mean, there's this in. Again, interesting rule that seldom comes to full fruition in 51st State Master Set. After you pass, no one can attack you. Several times, I, I was I had the map elements that I needed from No One's Land. And so several times I passed earlier than I would otherwise do because I saw someone stockpiling military, uh, uh, military resources. And I figured best get out while the getting's good. And so again... As a way to spice up and change the fundamental formula, I thought it was great. And pound for pound, it was an impressive expansion in terms of how few rules and components it added and in terms of the outsized influence that it had on the gameplay. But for new players, 
Absolutely not. I would stick with something like one of the two pack-in expansions of the Master Ma, 51st State Master Set, or Allies, or maybe even Scavengers. So an interesting experiment, and one that I'd like to go back to maybe, but certainly not for every day. Agreed. And that is 51st State Master Set by Portal Games. On the topic of more vaguely skirmishy stuff, I get to play Aristea. So Aristea is kind of sort of a sports game, but not really. Kind of sort of a skirmish game, but not really. And one of the things that I think is worth emphasizing is that although it's published by Corvus Belli, who, the same company that does my favorite tabletop miniatures rule set, Infinity, and despite the fact that it has released character expansions, they have stopped releasing expansions since 2020. The last expansions that they did were a character expansion that year, as well as the multiplayer expansion called Primetime. Parenthetically, just as a reminder, the Primetime expansion is as bad as you might think it is for a fundamentally two-player game, turning it into a multiplayer game. The team rules are basically the same version of every team rule you've seen in fundamentally two-player games. Like, well, you split the team in two, and everybody gets half a team, and... Half the fun. Half the fun, and go play the game, whatever. Half the actions. Yeah, absolutely. But... The reason why they haven't released new expansions is not because they've stopped supporting the game. They've continued supporting the tournament scene. They've continued supporting the game with uh, rules updates and facts and clarifications and events. They haven't released character expansions because they think it's complete. Or is this is this like the sort of the big 2.0 coming out soon? Maybe. I don't know. They, they could make me eat my words shortly by announcing the definitive edition or the master set or what have you. But so far for the past three years, what they have is a stable set where they're not trying to sell you more product, but they're still supporting the game. You almost never see that in the miniature space. So kudos to that so far. Again, come up with an announcement in a couple of days making me look like an idiot, but whatever. And so I have the full set of all the characters in Aristea. Lots of interesting character differentiation there. And this was the first time I'd introduced the game to a new player in a while. And the Hanverker seemed to really enjoy it. He really took to it well also. I gave him one of the starting teams from the base set, and I just picked my four favorite characters. And I really like them, and they do not work well together at all. <laughs> they just don't synergize. But it's like, these are my four favorites. <laughs> <laughs> they look really cool. They look, they look really cool, and they're all really interesting, and I know a little bit about what they represent in the universe, and oh, look at that. None of them help each other well at all. <laughs> yeah. One of the best parts about Aristea is it has like that air, land, and sea sort of I'm going to cut my losses because it's a high scoring type affair. Yes. So it's like they're going to score in a minute. I'm just going to let them do that. I don't care. I'm going to set up for the next one because when they score there, the ball will appear at this end and I can spend my time getting ready for that as opposed to, you know, frivolously trying to stop them when I know I cannot. Yes. That was another insight that I failed to remember when playing So I have to say, I chose a bad team and I played them very poorly. <laughs> but I adore Aristea. Again, because when I'm playing a skirmish-type game, anything even remotely in that wheelhouse, I want a reason to move, and I want a reason to do things other than just hit you as hard as I can every time that I can. And by virtue of the vaguely sports trappings, Aristea does that in spades. And I also appreciate the fact that, yes, there are many character expansions, but they're reasonably economical. You can get a four-character pack with the attending cards necessary to support them as well as their action cards for around 25 bucks online after discounts. Now, they go in and out of print. They're not really good at keeping them all in print all at the same time, but there have been reprints now and then. And I appreciate that. Again, that may sound like a lot from a Euro space, although less so now, but in the vaguely skirmish space, that's really good value. 
And so Aristea has really had legs. It was originally published in 2017. They had three years of, con- of, of relatively regular expansions, no expansion since then, but it's still being supported in other ways. I really appreciate that. And I really enjoy Aristea. We reviewed it a while ago. It was one of the games that we reviewed in the middle of COVID because there's an excellent tabletop simulator module or two. And it's a stellar example of the field. I love Aristea. I love the universe. I love the, the the mythology surrounding it. I even got to gush a little bit. The Hanverker didn't seem to care about. Well, you know, this character technically is affiliated with this faction, and she's a fencing instructor with the Paniosini military. And yeah, he started getting the same glossy eyed look. This one you, right here. Yeah, 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 that that's the one. Gotcha. Were you there? I don't yeah. think you were there, but miraculous. It's 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 a stunning resemblance. So that's Aristea. This was designed by Alberto Abal, Jesus Fuster, and David Rosillo, published by Corvus Belli. So we streamed that game of Dice Manor, and after that, we got to play an actual game called Scout. This is put out by Oink Games and designed by Kei Kajino. I think this is my favorite trick-taking game. I really enjoy Scout. It, okay. So ju- I, I, I say this not for me, but for the army of our lovely P-Dance. We have lovely P-Dance who listen to the show. Yeah, not really a trick-taking game. Sorry. It's a climbing game. Climbing game. I, like you, think they're fundamentally similar types of games. Moving on. I'm, I'm so sorry to interrupt. It's, it's it's perfectly fine. Yeah. Because it just has the right, you know, degree. Uh, knowing it knows it has no theme. But, but <laughs> I love the circus it, it theme. Is, it is. But I mean, like, it doesn't try to pretend that it's yeah. there. It, it, it plays into the fact that it's featherweight dusted on top. <laughs> it, you know, it names all the cards and yep. sort of the occupation. Henry and James are coming out of the trampoline. It's like, oh yeah, we're Car- well, Caroline and yeah. Stephen are being shot out of a cannon. So it's a game where you cannot sort your cards, but you are allowed to take sets. Well, I shouldn't say sets of cards. The cards you're about to play, you can take out as a group anywhere in your hand. So long as they're adjacent so to each other. So long as they're adjacent. Yeah. And then there are, there's another... Uh, mechanism where you're going to pick up cards and you're allowed to insert them into your hand as well. The other trick about this game is that they're sort of double-ended cards. You, When you pick up your cards at the beginning of the hand, you can turn them upside down if you like those better. And same thing with the cards you're picking up during the game. You can pick them up and flip them around and put them in that way. And this will, being able to pull cards out of the middle to play. Well, because Hel- Helen can't just be shot out of a cannon. She no. can juggle too. True. It just depends on how you want her to and use she it. prefers to perform with Bill, so that works out. Yes. So pulling cards out of the middle will bring cards together that you want and grabbing cards from the table and sliding them in will make certain cards more powerful. It's very much, you know, trying to get rid of your cards at the right time so people are going to get negative points and, you know, taking as many. When someone plays a big hand of four cards, being able to beat that because you'll immediately swipe them up and they'll go right into points, which is a good thing. Scout would play anytime. The Scout is amazing. The joy of being able to create your own good sets, which so many other card games just take for granted you're just going to be dealt them. That, that joy of playing that crappy set, so now the two cards that were on the other end of your hand are now next to each other. It's like, oh, now I've got five ones. Yeah. I didn't have five ones before. And but... then you play them in the screams of protest. Oh, well, no, we scream in protest because of the other things you do at the table. It's but... true. Yeah. Yeah, Scout's amazing. By Oink Games. Played some more Summoner Wars online. 
Dr. Stallone wanted to play some Summoner Wars, and I was happy to oblige. This time I played exclusively with factions from the starter set. I commented before, again, I'm thinking a lot about distribution models for different kinds of expandable games. And I talked before about how affordable Summoner Wars is. If you want to just get the starter set with two factions, it'll only cost you about 20 bucks. If you're willing to pay about twice as much as that, you can get the... They call it a master set. Master set is clearly a loaded word, <laughs> which, has, which has six factions. But the starter set for the second edition consists of the noble, hardworking Salt of the Earth orcs against the vainglorious, hubristic, condescending elves. So just, just fool themselves with what they are. They think they're cute they think is the they, problem. It's true. They think they all that, and they're not. They're not. They wish they could be orcs. Pointy ears are so tomorrow. No. Wait, scrap that. Scrap that. (laughs) Pointy years are so yesterday. Yeah, stop trying to make pointy years happen. Anyway, Summoner Wars is great. I love finding out the new combos. I love being humiliated by my opponents, which is frequently what happens in Summoner Wars. I still haven't quite figured it out. But unlike a lot of other games where the scrum is kind of a problem, it's a simple grid. And so managing the scrum is kind of built in. Units will get in the way of your own units. You need walls, you need portals to summon your units, but your portals will also get in your own way as well as everything else. And all in the aim of trying to get those few fleeting hits off of off of the summoner. So the, managing the crowd control of Summoner Wars remains consistently engaging, and I do like exploring the new factions. And so I do have the physical edition of the Master Set, so there's a lot of new factions that I haven't tried. Looking forward to exploring more of that. So that is more experiences with Summoner Wars 2nd Edition by Colby Dotch at Plat Hat Games. We got to get Whale Riders back to the table. This is by up-and-coming designer Reiner Knizia, Vincent Dutrait Art, and this is put out by Grail Games. And this is a game where you're launching, riding your whale, launching down, trying to collect all these. We're different... launching whales I, I through a trebuchet, or you're scooting, scrooging. Do, 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 do we mount flowing. a narwhal on a sort of ballista? Yes. Oh, okay. It. And you're so you're collecting all these different goods, and your recipe fulfillment is what you're doing. And so, I know. Okay, everyone, make sure you're sitting down. It's a Reiner Knizzi game. And you get two actions. (laughs) So you're either moving down to the next level or you're collecting goods or you're, or you're mixing up the, your orders to get orders that you prefer. And it's a game that's going to play much differently depending on player count. And I luckily saw this very early because as people take the resources from the line, you're drawing out of this bag and there's going to be storms and they're just going to lock up that whole line. And yeah. So, markets get progressively worse over the course of the game. Yes. So we're playing five players. And so I, so people were just rocketing down the line to try to get to the fresh markets. And meanwhile, you know, and because there's going to be no return trip because right. all of the markets are going to be destroyed by the time the return trip happens. And, you trying to get to the end because there's a bunch of free victory points at the end. All in all, Whale Riders is always a hit, always fun. I think the reason why it's one of my favorites, if not my all-time favorite order fulfillment game, is that in Whale Riders, you're frequently stuck with this hand of orders that is almost easy to execute. <laughs> and you're always left wondering, it's like, okay, well, ideally what I would do is I would fulfill a whole bunch of orders at once get the money in the points and get new orders in for free. 
Or I could take an action burning some of the orders, which sounds like a waste of time, but is it a waste of time? Is it more of a waste of time to go out of my way to fulfill the obnoxious orders to get the efficiency that way? Or should I eat the bon- the wasted action now? And if so, which orders should I get rid of? Which ones are the obnoxious ones? That is the calculation that so uh, rarely exists to that level of pointedness in other order fulfillment games. Yeah, it's that action efficiency where you, when you fulfill orders, you can fill as many as you like. So you're incentivized to make sure you have like this giant banquet of resources so you can turn up all three cards at once that are ridiculous and need all sorts of weird resources absolutely and that that is i think one of the 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 ways in which i really i could feel myself slipping behind i would look at these cards and go okay i can fulfill this order i will keep bashing my face against the wall until i fulfill this order because ditching it would just be a waste of an action it's like no it wasn't a waste if you spend five unnecessary actions just to get that one order fulfilled that isn't worth that many points that's the waste should have taken the investment right up front and yeah. It, <laughs> well, no, it's it's a calculation based on a number of risk factors and the behavior of the other other players in the game. And I looked at the one tile I needed. No one's going to buy that one tile I need. It's going to be there for no. And a no. player game for sure. Yeah. No, and I was just I was just being silly. And you're right. Like a lot of Reiner Knizzi games, like a lot of games generally, the overall tempo and thrust of the game changes based on the number of players. I like I know this instinctively now, well, quasi instinctively in Raw. I do not play Raw the same way with three players that I do with five. The kind of bids that I will make are radically different, and that's because I know the game just works radically different. Well, writers, you have to make the same kinds of adaptations, and those who fail to do so will not profit. And I don't... Now, I'm not saying that Whale Riders is as good as Raw. Practically nothing in the universe is. But Whale Riders, I think, is is the definitive example of why Reiner Knizia in the 2020s can still design an amazing, very approachable rules-like game that, although not the equal of the utter masterstrokes he did in the late 90s, is absolutely worthy of attention. I've been noticing a lot of people snapping up copies of Whale Riders. It's weird. So Grail Games lost the license in part because they apparently didn't pay royalties. and But copies keep showing up here and there in the distribution chain. Like Miniature Market got a handful of copies, and Board Game Bliss got a handful of copies here, there, and everywhere. Keep your eyes open. They become available sooner or later. It's mostly out of print, but they show up at retail. Whale Riders by Reiner Knizzi and Grail Games. Honestly, the combination of Reiner Knizzi and Vincent Dutre, how could you go wrong? It's so true. Finally, for me, we got to play Imperial Far Corners. So Imperial Spells in Steam is the delightful rondelle train game of a billion and one special powers and lovely map manipulation by Trey Chambers at Level 99 Games. Because remember, the overall motto of Level 99 Games, more is more, and can we have some more? And Imperial Far Far Corners is a mini expansion that very recently got fulfilled in Canada. It was held up behind Screw You Canada for several weeks, if not months, prior to being fulfilled, and it consists of just a couple of metropolises. I don't know what the plural of metropolis is. Metropoli. It's not metropoli. I don't think there's a weird... Ver- Metropolodes? Metropoles? Metropoles. There you go. That's good. And a small number of new specialists, which leads to my significant problem with Imperial, generally speaking, as a product line. So now there have been... There's been one large expansion, as above, so below, as well as a series of smaller things here and there, so the, the metropoles, and so, as, as exemplified by Imperial Far Corners. There are not good player aids that consolidate all this information. 
and you need the player aids. I played Imperial a bunch of times. I've enjoyed it every time, but I have not internalized the iconography. That's not even necessarily a slight. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of special powers and special effects on spell cars, on specialists here, there, and everywhere. And you're constantly handing the reference sheets. My advice is just make your reference sheet game tight to get on top of it. But there's no consolidated reference sheet. Yeah, I'm now at the position where I have a consolidated reference sheet for the first expansion, but every once in a while I'll be like, my my thing isn't here. It's like, oh, well, that means it's in the latest expansion. You pull out the different... Ugh, it's a pain. Is it a pain that I'm willing to pay? Absolutely. It's a delightful game. Lots of visual presence. Lots of interesting trade-offs. Lots of great decisions. Lots of lots of clever stuff. But I wish it were a little bit easier to manage all this... this, this, this. Next time, I think, you do an expansion like this in crowdfunding, I think it would be great to, to have an additional add-on for 5 to 10 bucks or something for just a nice set of consolidated player aids. Make them PDFs, even. Don't even need to print them. I'd pay 5 bucks for consolidated PDF player aids for a game like Imperial. For sure. Yeah. They, maybe they're just worried that they're going to put another expansion there by you know, making that obsolete. That's a good point. <laughs> You're basically signing yourself up for an endless series of revisions in that case. I definitely want something like that for leans, like the, the ridiculous oh, number of extra buildings yes. that they've added to that. It's true. Luckily, it's it true. has a great player base, so there's tons of them online that you can already download, but having a nice book would be nice as well. Absolutely. Lastly, for me, I got Ark Nova to the table, not to my computer, not on Board Game Arena. I did not play Ark Nova on Board Game Arena. I played it on my table. This is designed by Mathis Wiggy and put out by Feudaland Spiel. And it, it, it once again just showed how how lucky the deck will make. You know, mm. will just play into what you're doing. It's like, okay, I need a card like this. Oh, I just randomly drew it off the top. It's like, oh, I need more meat eaters. Oh, thank you, deck, for giving me two more. I need a bird from deck. South Africa. Yeah, it was just a, and the way my cards were lined up, it was just a sort of, you know, a, a combination of of cards I wanted and needed and actions that I needed to do. <laughs> it was unfun for the other players, I'm sure, but my second game is not going as well as my first, <laughs> but we'll see. I'm enjoying it a lot more, uh, I mean, than I used to. Not because it's on a, a, a computer, <laughs> because because there's a lot of like thing little niggling things that you might forget. It's like this card will allow you to you know do this and allow you to put a map piece on and you know all these little triggers that you might sometimes forget or not realize are coming. And this this uh, new player aid that I'm playing with uh, helps you sort all of that out. Walker, you're a terrible liar. <laughs> And that is just because Board Game Arena refuses to bribe you doesn't mean you should pretend as though you're not using their service. <laughs> no, no, it's because we're not supposed to talk about alpha games. Yeah, I, I know. <laughs> All right. That's Arc Nova, <laughs> not on Board Game Arena Alpha. Those are the games we played last week. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945.
You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. Walker, Phantom Division. It doesn't exist. Uh, fake news. It's fake news. I am now convinced that Phantom Division is an art, uh, is is a, a work of performance art. Some sort of elaborate ruse. Yeah, it's like the Emperor's New Clothes. It's, Precisely. It's the dexterity version. Precisely. I mean, on the face of it, it's too good to be true. A follow-up to the only game that matters, Seal Team Flicks. Now with neoprene mats and plastic walls. With a sci-fi theme and more customizability. Why don't they say, like, delivered by a SWAT team on top of that? Like, they yeah, might as yeah. well, right? Made out of rare earth magnets or some crap. Yeah. Like, yeah, like, why do you just keep shining them on? It's in space, right? They can just say, you know, it will, like, come to you in a rocket. And I've got the proof. Do you know how I know for a fact that it's fake? Phantoms don't exist, right? So, so. So zero. There are zero phantoms. You can't divide by zero. You can't have zero division. It's true. I figured I it out. Why. Ah. Read the signs, sheeple. Read the signs. So, in other words, they keep saying on crowdfunding soon, but this is clearly a lie. Did you? How do they spell soon? See, that's how the trick they make. Oh, right? they probably threw an extra O in there, right? That's, that's a they, good call. I should pay more attention to the spelling. See, there are always more signs. Exactly. We enjoyed Radlands. They have announced Rocks the Games has announced a couple of things. One of them being an expansion for Radlands. I'm excited about that. Eh. I like Radlands. Radlands was okay. It's no Wizards of the Grimoire. It's true. It's, I mean, in terms of card battlers, there's a lot. We've been enjoying Wizards of the Grimoire. We've been enjoying Time Barons. There's all... I just really enjoy that genre. The the post-apocalyptic is sure. the thing I like. That's fair. More Santorini stuff. Walker, why don't you tell us about the well, Santorini stuff? I, 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 it's one of these things, maybe you do it as well. You're on the socials. <laughs> <laughs> Hit the social media. Yeah, you're you're, you're clickety clacking through the thing, and, like and, the kids and, say, right? And you see some like interesting pictures, and it's like, yeah, I'm looking for something. I'll go back to that. Yeah, okay. I could I couldn't find the pictures I saw, but what I did see is a spiral bound book, opening up like Jaws of the Lion style, or any of the you know the the other games where you oh, there's a map in a spiral band and it's going to be like a campaign system and you need you're going to be phys- uh figuring out little puzzles little santorine puzzles in a sort of co-op campaign style thing and it looks super interesting and it also has a whole bunch of sort of uh visual cosmetic add-ons that will make it look even nicer as well yeah, there's going to be a Pantheon edition, which is supposed to be some sort of omnibus and or fancy big box thingy, because it's very visually appealing, but admittedly somewhat cheaply made. 
which is the way to do it. I mean, make it cheap and make it look nice. But, you know, if you want to glam it up, that's that's certainly an option as well. As well as a uh, solo slash co-op version called Riddle of the Sphinx, which definitely doesn't sound like my cup of tea because the way you do solo and co-op positional abstracts is basically like doing chess problems. True. Which I think say, that's like, what it is. Super, super puzzly. Not, not to yeah. my taste, but I, absolutely a good direction to bring the game system. At first, I was wondering how they're going to do. Like, are they going to have add-ons for people that already own Santorini? But it was a, it wasn't a huge expense to begin with. I'm not saying that, you know, it would right. be a waste to have two copies, but it's not as though it's like one of these gigantic, gigantic games, right? Sort of like uh, what was the one that came out, uh, Isle of Sky. I already had the the game and the expansions. I'm not about to buy the big box, right? Or, or Hansa Hanukkah just to get Absolutely. the mini expansion that you just don't happen to have. Yes. Yes. Whereas this looks like it's fairly a lot of extra stuff, and uh, the the initial just basic game is not that expensive anyway. It's true. There's going to be a new expand alone for Decrypto, the deduction game by Le Scorpion Masqué. So Decrypto was released a few years ago by Thomas Dagenet d'Espérance. I really want to go back to it. We've only had a couple experiences with Decrypto. It didn't really click with me. Part of it, as I think the admittedly, I'm very sorry, warm boy, shoddy rules explanation we got in the first instance. I do want to go back to it because games of that ilk are very much things that I enjoy doing. And a lot of people swear by Decrypto and absolutely love it. So there's going to be a new expand alone version with a gray, a gray box, just a whole bunch of new word cards with a whole bunch of new clues to be able to use. Buy it as an expansion, buy it as, as a new introduction to Decrypto. Uh, do what you like. So more Decrypto from Scopion Maski. And that is the news and why it does not matter. And that is going to do it for this week. Thank you very, very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find all our contact information at sowronggames.com slash contact. Thank you so much for deciding to spend some time with us. We really, really appreciate it. And we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. Another installment of Masterpiece Theatre in honor of His Grace, the Reverend Dr. Dr. Vincent Duke of Diesel, Esquire OBE. This week we will be discussing the comedy drama, the Bill Hader vehicle, Body. Walker, what did you think of Barry? Barry is a very interesting show. It is about a veteran who's come back from the war and he has learned that his only skill set is killing. And learned is an interesting use of that term. Anyway, go on. So. In his own mind, he's decided that killing is okay because he's only going to kill the bad people. Yes. And it's not so much that uh, this is, you know, something he's come up with, but it's something that's used against him. Exactly. In order to get him to do what this other protagonist wants him to do. So the the person you're referring to, is his character's name is Fuchs. He's played by Stephen Root. Uh, you may not know, you may not think you know Stephen Root, but you've seen Stephen Root in a lot of things. He's one of the greatest character actors currently working today. Uh, he's been in so many, I can't even begin to talk about the number of roles he's had, but 
many people might remember him best from his minor starring role as Melvin from Office Space, obsessed with his red stapler. He's a brilliant character actor. And yeah, he's basically convinced Barry that he's only killing bad people. This is what he's good for. It's all okay. Uh, meanwhile, pocketing half of the money. <laughs> if not more. If not more, we don't know. But the, the the key thing about the overall thrust of the show about Barry is that it is a black comedy slash drama where Barry decides he wants to become an actor. Which is absurd on the face of it and also absurd in the context of the show. Yeah, because one of his marks is going to an acting school. Yes. Who is, who, what is, who's being taught by Henry Winkler. Yes, Henry and Winkler in a brilliant role. Fantastic job of just making how, how silly the whole thing is. Oh, yeah. It's, the, the great thing about Barry is that it's one of those black comedies where nobody is sympathetic and yet everyone is sympathetic. They're all monsters. Every human you encounter in the the, the show of Barry is a mo- well, some minor exceptions, yeah. but the core cast—they're all terrible human beings, awful people, yeah, awful people. But nonetheless, you still have moments of sympathy for almost all of them, which is great. I will say, I'm significantly further on the show than you are. I've watched everything that's aired. Uh, there have been three seasons so far. Uh, fourth and final season is about to start airing. Uh, Walker is only a bit into the first season. Something happens in the third season that completely changes most of my impressions of what the show has been doing so far in a positive way. It left me reeling, and it was really... I don't want to go into details because I don't want to get into spoilers. And it's exceptionally well done. The tone is just perfectly managed. And there's so many excellent character performances, I can't even begin. So I'll have to come back to it, I guess, when we when we, when we we finally finish it. We'll sure. We'll have to do a, a return to Barry for the finale. And as a bit of a background, so Bill Hader... Uh, you, like, I had no idea Bell Hader had this in him. So he, 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 he writes a lot of the episodes. It was his conception. He's directed some of them and he's, he's the star. I never thought he had that much range, that capacity. Like sometimes you don't know how talented people are until they're given the opportunity. And he basically wrote the show as a sort of, it, it, it's meant to capture the sort of, um, anxiety that he felt working in comedy. The anxiety of somebody at the top of their game, yet nonetheless crippled by self-doubt. And that's kind of where Barry is. Now, granted, Barry feels self-doubt about his profession for different reasons than Bill Hader did. Slightly different. But nonetheless, it's eminently relatable. And oh yeah, oh, it's, it's 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 funny, it's horrifying, it's great. And I will I want to stress one thing that isn't often stressed. Each season is eight half-hour episodes. Thank you. Prestige television sometimes is draining. <laughs> Feels like you need an extra job because <laughs> it's 13 hour long episodes. Like, uh, who's got the time? Thank you, Barry. Yes. And it's also frustrating sometimes when it's like 9, 13, 2, Mandalorian. We're going to make this episode <laughs> 45 minutes. <laughs> yeah, I... I, I uh... I noped out on the Mandalorian ever since they they the CGI Mark Hamill showed up. But anyway, <laughs> That's what I'm telling you, AI will take over everything. It'll be great. I can't wait. Really? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. I Barry has my highest recommendation. I think it is probably uh, the greatest show current on air, currently on air, as far as I'm concerned. Succession might be in competition for it, but I mean they're both on the same platform, so there you go. Uh, Barry is is a wonderful antidote to a lot of other prestige television, while at the same time having a lot of the best elements of a lot of modern prestige television. And that's Barry. Barry. Thank you once again, listeners, for joining us for Masterpiece Theater. We hope to see you again soon. Please do take care. Bye-bye. 
Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.